0: So, um, if you ever want to hear the talks, there are about now 300 of the last talks I've given. Um, uh, I started teaching here 10 years ago, but I only started recording the talks about four years ago. So, the last four years are available on, uh, if you go to the Dharma Punks with an XNYC.com website, you can hear them. So, uh, tonight we're talking about... Um, Those times in life where we become, for lack of a better term, triggered and we act in self sabotaging ways, where our uh, reactive emotional states kick in, where we feel, for one reason or another, threatened. and we become taken over by um, very strong impulses or compulsions to act in certain ways uh, that often sabotage relationships or opportunities or situations where we could stand up for ourselves and we find ourselves uh, not behaving in ways that live up to what we would like to do in our lives, how we would like to behave in our lives. Now, um, some examples of these are uh, being attracted to completely unavailable people and continually going back again and again, uh, going back again and again to someone who's rejected us, whether in a romantic sense or in an emotionally supportive sense, and trying to get them to give us, Attention, or love or compassion when we see that uh, that's not available. In certain programs they call this uh, trying to buy orange juice from the hardware store. So there's that. There's the times when we shut down in certain situations where, that, where we feel overmatched or frightened. There's the running away and bailing on opportunities or new projects and jobs just because we feel slightly criticized. The moments when uh, very tolerable sensations of criticism or um, difficulty get conflated by us into wholesale feelings of being attacked and we take off. So these are some of the examples I use. Freud... Called these repetition compulsions. Repetition compulsions in the sense that they're very compulsive. We don't have... Uh, compulsions are things that we don't have um, intellectual or rational override uh, to control. And repetitious in the sense that we tend to habitually ingrain these processes and do them to a frustrating amount. You might in your life have known somebody who keeps going back again and again and again to the wrong girlfriend or boyfriend. And you just want to scream, No I really think he's changed this time. No Don't do it I she's going back to he's going back to can you believe No No, really, really, just listen. He wrote me a very nice email. I'm sure that those times that he abandoned me in Nebraska, he didn't mean it. No! Anyway, so, uh, they're repetitious, and they can be extremely frustrating uh, for friends, and extremely bewildering for us when we're trapped in it. So what's going on here? well, Uh, without going too deep into the processes, but to give you just enough so that you know, because sometimes having a little uh, grasp on these things I believe is useful. Um, Early in life, we have what are known as relational woundings, which are simply the times in our life as infants when we depended on our caretakers. We have, uh, you know, hopefully established some kind of emotional Relationship, and generally, this is very early in life when we're even before we've fully acquired language. And we communicate with caretakers by look, by body movements, by facial expressions, by uh, locked in glances. And there are times when an infant loses that secure connection with a caretaker and it feels abandoned. And for an infant, Those times, if they're not repaired, if those ruptures are not repaired quickly, uh, it feels traumatic. And then these woundings can continue to happen well into early childhood life, where we feel frightened, we feel abandoned, we feel rejected, we feel uh, completely overwhelmed. For an infant to lose the attention of its caretaker feels like death. Is imminent Because an infant is completely dependent on its caretakers to survive. So in early childhood, when the mother uh, reacts with some hostility or just removes her attention from the infant, it feels to the infant like whatever it was expressing, whatever emotional state was going on at that present moment becomes associated with deep abandonment deep vulnerability, deep sadness, deep loss. Uh, And so, from that point on, if the relationship is not repaired, the child will begin to associate certain emotional states, physical states, with, I'm about to be abandoned. Certain children are abandoned when they cry or when they express frustration and their parents will pull away their attention. And from that point <coughs> onwards, they any experience later on in life of frustration or being uh, upset is associated with really losing connection with everything that's going to take care of its welfare. Sometimes uh, an infant <coughs> will... Uh, shut down when it's surrounded by a parent that suddenly changes its uh, moods from one direction of compassionate to another of uh, complete disinterest, narcissistic self-fixation, or complete uh, 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 unpredictability. So there's lots of things that can be very traumatizing for an infant, And generally, those conditions that it associates with abandonment, it will try to avoid later in life. So, let's use some concrete examples. Um, Well, before I go to the concrete examples, when these disturbing traumatic uh, separations or loss of attachment occur, the right hemisphere of the brain, which is the part of your brain that controls your relationships and your emotional states, it begins to associate an emotion with abandonment and experience a situation with abandonment. For instance, uh, a child can associate um, uh, a certain glance or a mother's becoming distant or a father's becoming distant can be associated with abandonment. And the right hemisphere stores this memory. And then the child can react by trying to get back the parent's attention. Come back to me. Look at me. Take me in. That's the formation of the fight impulse, the protest. I want you to come back to me. No, don't go away. No, don't abandon me. And the child will become angry and confrontational, demand attention. Sometimes, though, the two-year-old will become very frightened of the caretaker and will avoid, learn to avoid the caretaker. It finds the caretaker too unsatisfactory in certain emotional states or certain situations, and will just flee. And that's known as the flight impulse. And the third impulse is just shutting down. Literally, infants can just become completely dissociated, no longer taking in any information, lost. Somewhere, And that becomes the freeze impulse that people can go into in dissociative episodes later on in life. So let's fast forward to our adult life, where we replay these core dramas over and over and over again. For instance, say the, <coughs> um, the man who's got borderline personality disorder... He grows up, perhaps, with a mother who is really, really uh, unavailable at times and uh, is unpredictable when she's going to give love and attention and when she's going to withhold it. And so this fellow very often can become very clingy in relationships, very demanding, and is willing to drop everything in his life at the sign of somebody who will accept him completely. But the first sign that the woman is becoming abandoning like his mother again, he will flee, bail on the relationship and give up trying. So he's replaying the childhood drama again in his adult life. And the problem is that there is very, very little intellectual oversight, reasonable oversight, in no way in this arena has the grown adult man become adult. He's still reacting to stimuli, like an infant that will be killed if somebody pulls their attention away. That's what repetition, compulsion, sabotaging behaviors do. They keep us trapped in infant reactive responses. And it's amazing, doing a lot of Buddhist work with people over the years, I mean, a lot of people who are extremely successful in certain endeavors in their life, yet in the romantic arena, which is often the arena where we see these things play out, because let's face it, our romantic (laughs) lives are the most um, fertile and resonant to our early childhood experience. We're both vulnerable, we're needy, just like we were with our parents, We are relating in situations where uh, we don't feel a lot of control. And so it brings up all of those feelings of vulnerability. So uh, I can work with people who in every other area of their life can be adult. They can show up to work. They can negotiate deals or, you know, be very creative people. But put them into a relationship, and the first moment there's any criticism, they're out, I'm out. She said, she said... uh, I didn't like my coffee made that way. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? You're like, wait, the coffee made that way. The fuck? What the fuck did she come off? I'm like, whoa, okay. Okay. <laughs> and this, is, this can happen so across the board. Um, I grew up with an alcoholic uh, father who could move from one extreme of com- being kind and funny and uh, loved jazz, very creative. He was a painter. And then, a couple of bottles later, which, in my mind, I wouldn't take in, but he could just go to extreme violence rage filled alcoholic uh drunk i can i my ear some of my earliest memories are plates flying <laughs> across the table, my mom screaming locked in her closet, my dad pulling me by my ankles in the middle of the night to have a shower for some reason, all of this Stuff was extremely frightening, so later on in life, I would immediately go into the exact same ingrained reactive behaviors to try to um, uh, what, what do you call it when you uh, uh, there's a bomb and you try to deactivate it neutralize a bomb diffuse. diffuse i would I developed in my childhood a desperate diffusing attempt would would be first to try to, to be funny, and then if that didn't work, I would just flee. So funny and flee were ingrained as my survival. And so years later in my life, when I would be around bullying, uh, you know, jocks or whatever, and I was a young, skinny punk with a mohawk in, uh, well before any of you were born, and... Uh, We were beaten up a lot around 1980, walking around the streets of New York with our, you know, uh, our Mohawks, and there'd invariably be, you know, uh, gangs of people that weren't punks that would... And my first response would be, or whenever I was just confronted with anybody who was tough, who was macho, who was, you know, hyper-masculine, would be to see if I could defuse them with a couple of jokes, and if I couldn't, then I would flee. Uh, If they didn't laugh... At my craziness, then I would just get the fuck out of there. I had no ability to uh, talk rationally after that or to put up a, you know, any kind of resistance. I would just basically shut down and run. And that became deeply ingrained. Now, a lot of us have de- other <laughs> deeply ingrained reactions from early childhood. Some of us, in promising jobs or promising opportunities where we get an opportunity to put forward our creative work, the, the things that we get real joy in producing, the moment there's even the first sense of criticism or difficulty or people not liking our work, we might shut down and flee. Or we might find ourselves deeply activated, wounded by certain relationships and just have this idea, if I just saw her or him one more time and could just talk one more time... I would be able to make them see how I feel or the uh the you know any other repetitious um, uh completely ingrained behavior where we wake up from it afterwards and we're like, i can't believe I let that person push me around again, and I just shut down i can't believe I let that pushy asshole just you know, get his way, and I just sat there and I didn't say anything. I can't believe I went back again and picked up that email or that phone call from that person I know doesn't really care about me. In each of these occasions, the reason why the compulsion is so strong is because the right hemisphere which controls our attention, controls our emotional relationships, and controls basically our emotional regulation, (coughs) all of those three things are combined to create this feeling of I can't be safe unless I go into this reactive response. Sometimes it's even worse than that. Otto Finishel, a great psychologist, suggested that some people continually bring about the same triggering events from early life in an attempt to rewrite their childhood, to master. So they'll pick out, if they grew up with abandoning fathers, they'll pick out abandoning fathers. Imagine that. To date, they'll pick out abandoning men. So say <laughs> a young woman grows up, her mother's somewhat you know smothering, she looks to the father to rescue her, the classic a triadic relationship of early childhood. But the father is remote and doesn't really rescue her. He'll only give a little bit of attention. So she grows up to be a woman who dates one cold, remote, uncaring asshole after another. <laughs> and all of her friends go, No! No, no! You're dating the same person over and over and over again. But to her... Emotionally, each one presents the possibility of rewriting her childhood to finally get the love from Daddy that she never got. Now, what's the problem in this scenario? Well, in case you don't know, it's a very sad outcome. If the guy does suddenly become loving and caring, then he no longer represents her father, and she'll lose interest in him immediately and go on to the next asshole. On the other hand, if he... Stays an asshole and doesn't give love. Well, she's stuck once again, reliving a childhood in her adult life without any love or care. So that's pretty dire. Fortunately, the Buddha, who noticed this, um, who noticed this pr- this pattern, came, uh, and he actually had a name for it: Anusayas, underlying, habitually ingrained tendencies that compulsively arise in life. He just said we have this whole rich unconscious that is uh, structured before we achieve consciousness. I believe he, from reading the Buddha, I think he believed that it came from previous lives. Today, uh, as a more psychologically bound Buddhist, I tend to think it happened from early childhood experiences. You can believe one or the either or both. I don't really care. Uh, but something, before we achieve adult life, creates underlying tendencies, what the Buddha called Anasayas, which can reach up and grab hold of us unless we develop the tools to uh, begin to dismantle this process. So how do we do that? In the Buddhist uh, early text, The Buddha had his own repetition compulsion. Um, There was this energy or this uh, presence called Mara. And Mara, some people refer to as a god, but when you read the text, it's pretty clear it was just an externalization of the Buddha's desire for sense pleasure, which, of course, uh, he grew up very, very rich And then to (coughs) pursue the spiritual path, he gave up all of the creature comforts of living in a palace, the son of a king. And so he, throughout his life, occasionally, as life became very difficult, he was very poor, he lived entirely off of donations, he wandered around teaching the Dharma, he had very few warm places to sleep. And so once in a while, Mara would arise and would arise to him and say, Oh, Buddha... Buddha, Buddha, Buddha. Buddha, this is too hard what you're doing. This is just too hard. Just pack it in. Let's go back to the palace. We can be king. We can rule the world. We can help a lot of people. We can give money to charity. We can set up a a nice, you know, charity. What are you doing all this for? And each time... Mara would arise as a different visitor, a different incarnation. And each time the Buddha would say, I see you, Mara. I see you. I see you. And what he would do was bring his awareness inwards. He would pull away from Mara. And what this means is when we are activated, when we are triggered in life, when we're caught up in a repetition compulsion, when we are really caught up in a relational spiral with someone else, we're waiting for them to return our call, we're angry with them, we're fixating and repeating the story in our mind. What has happened is a very old story, Mara, has arisen, our childhood woundings has arisen and attached to a current event, a current person. And the first thing to do is to pull our attention away from the person that it's locked onto and bring awareness back within, to detach from who we're fixated on. So long as we're stuck in this dance, this dyadic dance with, in our imaginations with this one person, if only this one person returned my calls, loved me, accepted me, apologized, did whatever then everything would be okay. So long as we're trapped in that, we don't realize that the energy that is making this so addictive has really nothing to do with that person. It's a lifetime of feeling abandoned, feeling unsafe, feeling wounded, feeling um, lost, feeling not deeply cared for that started very, very young in life. Nothing, even if that person suddenly turned around and said, you know, you're right, I really love you, It would not fix the underlying wounding, the emotional energy. We'd simply move on to someone else, or we'd find something else about them to feel abandoning. We'd focus on something else. The work is internal, at first. We open up, instead, to what are the feelings we have been avoiding? What is it we don't want to feel? someone is bullying, when someone is abandoning, turning away, shutting down, rejecting us, when someone is not available, when we protest or when we keep going back or when we flee from a situation that's very frightening, it's always because there's an emotional energy somatically held in the body that we don't want to feel. We don't want to feel the exact same feelings of the infant who felt abandoned and then was hungry and scared and overwhelmed. We don't want to feel that in ourselves. And that's precisely the way through. As an adult, we can open to this feeling of, oh no, I'm not loved. Oh no, this person is not caring, not emotionally available, is not connecting with me. And we can feel that and hold it and create a safe vessel for these deep, deep woundings to arise. And we don't try to get rid of them. We have no agenda to get rid of these feelings. The repetition compulsion, the self-sabotaging behaviors, the obsessive thoughts that play out in the mind, those are attempts to get rid of our feelings. Those are reactions to the underlying feeling states. The way to dismantle reactivity is actually to create a safe space in the body for us to feel exactly what we've been running from all our lives. This is a lot to digest. I hope some of you are following me. But basically what we're doing is we're turning and facing the fear, the loss, the sadness that we've been running from all our lives and what that running has created our reactivity has created our defense mechanisms, has created our self-sabotaging tendencies, a desire to not feel the somatic experience of loss separation, loneliness so the practice is to turn <coughs> dislodge our attention from the person that we're spiraling about, that we're fixated on, and bring the awareness within and feel those sensations. And then relax around it. Soften the arms, soften the legs, soften the face, soften everything around it so that we can be with this sadness or this depression, whatever you want to call it. And finally, once we've held it, for a while the last process is to um, send thoughts of meta and kindness and I'll take care of you it's okay it's all right it's okay to be frightened it's okay to be scared it's okay to be lonely it's okay to feel abandoned it's all right I'm here now I'm an adult I'm not a child anymore, I can take care of us. We won't die. It's going to be all right. I'm here. We'll find peace. And we send these thoughts to this feeling of deep loss and grief that we've been running from all our lives. And we find then later on in situations where we normally would be triggered when the feeling of comes up in the body that we want to get rid of, instead we can hold it and we can be present. If it's too much in the moment when somebody is being pushy or, or just rejecting and shaming of us, we can simply breathe deeply into it, soften it, just enough that we can hold it, and we can stay present rather than acting out on the impulses to get rid of those feelings. And through this process, we can go from being triggered by other people to dismantling our reactivity. In my own life now, I can be around some of the most aggressive macho men. I actually, for a while after doing this process, I started volunteering to go to Rikers and other places to teach meditation and to halfway houses just to put myself in the place where I would be around the people that used to trigger me so that I could practice dismantling the reactivity. So, believe me, it's, this is available to us. This is available to us. So, for the final few minutes, what I'd like you to do is just find a really comfortable position <laughs> and just bring... To close your eyes and just bring to mind a event that happened recently enough that it's not something from early childhood, something that happened recently that triggered you, something that felt your reaction felt either disproportionate or proportionate, but you reacted in a way that left you feeling disappointed. You ran when you wish you stayed. You fought when you wish you stayed patient. You shut down and just lost all ability to speak when you wish you could have stood up for yourself. Any situation, I want you to hold an image that's resonant of that experience in your mind. just hold it in the screen where you hold you see memories and then bring your awareness to the front of the torso you'll probably feel the emotions somewhere between the face the shoulders the chest or the belly those are where infants signal emotions we signal our fear in the belly our feelings of abandonment are often in the chest, having too much going on and overwhelmed feelings are in the shoulders and feelings of disappointment and frustration often in the face. Sometimes in the throat, a feeling of choking off our words. So holding this image just begin to ask questions. How does it feel to be mistreated? How does it feel to be abandoned? How does it feel to be not seen? How does it feel to be disregarded, unloved, unaccepted? Whatever phrase is resonant for you, whatever phrase feels the most true? How does it feel to have someone turn away? How does it feel to be left? And even if right now, because this is a safe space and because we're inviting it sometimes, the emotions might not be that strong, see if you can feel even the slightest change in either the stomach, the chest, the throat, shoulders, or face, and just hold that area. Or if you know from experience, there's one area in your body where you feel a lot of your emotional losses... Let's bring awareness there. (coughs) And now let's and thoughts of metta, kindness, compassion. It's okay. I'll be here with you. I'll take care of you. I care about you. I won't abandon you. find lasting peace. So the last part of this process is when we do this to find someone who's a reliable, safe person. So rather than continuing the process of always going back and seeking love and acceptance from those who are abandoning or not reciprocating, to begin to turn in directions where there is love, where there is connection available to us, to begin that process of learning how to open, even though it's not to the people that are triggering our repetition convulsions, to still develop that practice of turning to the wise people in our lives and expressing the emotions that we've been running from, when we can express the loneliness, the sadness, the fear, the experiences of rejection, when we can express them out loud, then even more so than just uh, feeling them as well, we're beginning the process of owning and not being frightened of opening to those experiences. And when we can truly hold those experiences, they are no longer anywhere near as triggering to us in the rest of our lives. So I hope this was of use in some way. I thank you for listening. And now we...